Welcome to Day Live by Film, a film discussion podcast focusing on the Criterion channel and beyond. My name is Adam Lundy, and I am joined, as always, by my co-hosts, Chris Haskell and Zach Bryant. How are you doing today, guys? Doing good. How are you? I am great. And Chris, how are you, my friend? Hey, doing really well. I don't know if I... I, I was trying to think if there's a theme for this week, because we've done Tooth Extraction and then COVID Survival, so I think this there is just is. a regular... No, there is a theme. You weren't here. Me and Zach were talking about it. This is, is it? This is COVID Survival Part 2, Electric Boogaloo, because <laughs> I had to go get a COVID test today. I got my, oh. my nose tickled um, by, a, by a, a very friendly nurse. Um, yeah, I've been, off, I've been off sick the last couple of weeks, or a cu- couple of days, and uh, just with a sore throat, nothing major. And my doctor said I had to go get a test before I can get signed off to go back to work. So... Yeah, that was it. I had to get a test today, but I'll be very surprised if it comes back anything other than negative. Wait, so if you didn't get the test, you would not have to go back to work? <laughs> yeah, technically, I suppose. <laughs> but um, oh, work, but they work, get work. actual time off in other countries, Chris. Yeah, it's part of like this, this COVID sick leave. It's like special for this. If, if you suspect you have COVID, you're essentially not allowed to go back to work until um, you've been sort of cleared, you've gotten a negative test and everything like that. Well, yeah, I, I, I would be tempted to go do like a movie run or something and then claim that I was feeling better once I finished, but good on you for doing the right thing. So uh, before we talk about today's films, we actually have a very bit of exciting news. Like COVID-19, They Live By Film has gone viral. Uh, we launched our website this week, uh, theylivebyfilm.com, uh, where you can find all the episodes of the podcast. They're going to be uploaded there every two weeks, the same way they are you know, posted on the, the normal streaming sites. But also, you're going to be able to get a, a bit more in-depth look at our thought process and how we view film. Uh, we're going to be posting up reviews of films that we've seen, and ones that we're not even going to be necessarily talking about in the podcasts. Uh, there's going to be new reviews going up every day, at least sort of two or three pretty much every day uh, of reviews for films that we've been watching. Um, so, yeah, check it out. They live by film.com. It's live now. And, yeah, you won't regret it. So we'll crack into the first film. I know that we got our shameless plug out of the way. Um, so the first film, which I think is going to be really fun to discuss, despite it not being very fun to watch, uh, was Fat Girl. So... Uh, Fat Girl for the Uninitiated Among Us Um, it is a French film from 2001 directed by someone who I I don't really know a lot about her but I've read that she's a very controversial director her name is Catherine Brilla I I can't really pronounce her French name Um, but just to give you the basic rundown on on Fat Girl the synopsis from IMDB is uh, two sisters confront their sexual attitudes and experiences while on a family holiday that is a massive understatement of what happens in this film. And I think we're going to get a lot of different uh, views. I know when we did the discussion on Reddit about this film, there was a, a lot of conflicting views on, on how to view this, um, just in terms of its artistic merits versus exploitation voices versus <laughs> Zach's displeasure of, of, this, of the film. Um, I'm going to start with you, Zach, because obviously I, I read your review earlier today and there, there was one line that killed me in it. Um, before I before I get you to actually display your thoughts for it, I just want to ask you a really quick question: Is Fat Girl your images? 
Is this going to be your meme film? Yeah, it's gonna. I'm going to bring this film up in every episode. <laughs> Oh, fantastic. For for the only if this is your first episode, um I am well known for hating the film Images by Robert Altman and I bring it up whenever I can because it's a terrible, terrible movie. So I'm glad to hear this is gonna be added to the list of movies that, that, that we don't bring up in fear of backlash. Um <laughs> but yeah, look, let's just let's just take your raw thoughts on this one, Zach. Okay. So I'm gonna go ahead and start with what I what I thought was good about the film. Um I appreciated that it looked like a movie. Um, it was successful <laughs> in that. And the acting was pretty decent. Okay, well, I'm finished there. So uh, <laughs> let me talk about why this film does not work for me at all. Um, so obviously with the film, you talked about uh, the whole, these teenage girls exploring their sexuality. They're, you know, they're going through, pu- they've obviously gone through the puberty, the terrible, terrible teenage phase we've all been through. None of it's interesting. Like I, I am... There is so much they could do here. Like, uh, I'll go into the, you know, my first example, because I don't know if we're going to spoil the end of this or not. Oh, yeah, we have to. Like, we can't oh, Okay, okay, so I'm free with spoilers. So the, fir- the first thing is, the, you know, the a big theme, I think, of this film is talking about h- how abuse kind of comes in different forms and how it can appear to come from a loving place. And obviously, by the end of the film, a very uh, hateful place. But the problem is, it's, and I have no problem with lack of subtlety, but this is one of those cases where I think it's kind of needed. Like you're trying to inform people that there's, there's this abuse, but let's look at the first example where you have the 20 uh, year old Italian guy. What's his name? Fernando. I think yeah, that's his... Fernando. Yeah. So it, he is basically like when he's laying in bed with her, trying to convince her to have sex with him and that's all fine. Good. Whatever. I get it. It happens. Awesome. But it's the most boring way possible. Like, I sit there and listen to him for, like, 20 minutes saying, if you love me, you'll have sex with me. I'm like, that's not... I'm like, I know this is what happens, and that's fine. But it's so... It's it, it's a sledgehammer. It's like, here is the most easily shown way that you can do that. There's no nuance with it. There's nothing subtle about it. And then you get to the end, and suddenly it does look subtle, uh, subtle when, you know... Somebody, the point, I don't know what the point of that was. Like the very end of the movie, I just don't, I don't know what the point is. Like it just, random violence happens, random sexual violence happens, abuse looks like that. Okay. What do I, what do, I just don't know what I'm supposed to get out of it, I guess is the issue I had throughout the whole movie. So lack of subtlety to, to sort of chalk it down to one major thing, lack of subtlety. Yeah, it, yeah, and I and I don't mind lack of subtlety. I mean, you guys see what I review all the time. I mean, <laughs> half the stuff I watch doesn't have subtlety to it, but it's the wrong tone for you know what it's trying to convey. Like, I feel like this movie thinks it's important and discussing important things, but no one's going to get there and sit there and say, "Oh man, this is this is this is the abuse I don't understand." Like this, it's so overt that it's not really going to teach anybody or open a perspective for anybody. Just for some perspective on on Zach, um, for those of y'all who don't know, his top uh, 100, uh, and it's a rolling 100. So it's, it started, what, January of this year? Is that right? That's correct. The number three is Brawl and Cell Block 99. <laughs> 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 so just to put that in perspective as to uh, how miserable this experience was. <laughs> I can deal with someone's face being like ripped off through concrete, but, you know, not this. <laughs> 
what, what did you think of it then, Chris? Let's see if you have a different perspective on this one. So my first, I, I really think this is a film that benefits from a second viewing, and that's unfortunate because a lot of people don't ever want to watch it a second time. And I, and I totally get why not. Like, I would never say, like, this is something you should watch again. But I think it benefits from a second viewing because, Zach, my first time I saw it was just by total coincidence almost exactly a year ago. Um, at the time, I was, I was just going through the They Shoot Pictures 1000, and it was, like, number 1000. So it was the first film I watched in, like, January of last year or something like that. And I hated it so much. <laughs> like, very... I, I felt like it was like a, uh, a well-made, artistic, interesting film for like, you know, all the whole movie. And then the last scene, ever since they were at the gas station, just, I just, I didn't get it. I don't think it fit the tone. I didn't think it fit the, the, like what she was trying to say. Like it felt like a different movie that she tried to piece together. Like there was a separate horror movie that she made and she just like took a few minutes of it and kind of bolted it on and tried to make it work somehow. Um, and so that was my take on Fat Girl for, for the whole year. I didn't like it at all. Um, but I, you know, I, I was thinking about it. it. It didn't leave my head. Like, I didn't stop thinking about it. Um, and something happens when you know what's coming, where the ending feels more, to me, sorry, I don't know. But to me, the ending all of a sudden felt more like, to fit the character of the young girl. Because if you think about her character throughout the way that the movie is played, she deals in extremes, right? She has very kind of extreme personal ideology that doesn't really make sense for a, what is she supposed to be like 10 or 11, 12, somewhere in there? I think 12 or 13 or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So she's, she's young, right? Like she's immature. She's, she doesn't have a good sense of balance. She has a very clear definition of what's right and wrong already, which is interesting. Um, and she's smiling while she's essentially getting raped, right? Uh, and and if not smiling, then she's at least like satisfied by this happening because it fits into her worldview of like what how she wanted to lose her virginity, right? Which and so it's very unnerving. And like I think knowing that that's going to happen at the end, it sort of colored the way that her character was the way that she spoke and the way that she interacted with the other characters in the movie throughout the, the rest of the film um, for me. And it, it, it was less random and chaotic for me watching it a second time. Um, the other thing that helped was actually hearing other people talk about it because there was a, somebody that brought up on our, on the Reddit discussion around how this was a fantastic description, kind of what you talked about Zach of like the different levels of abuse and like the different levels of male sort of, power over women and, and the way that some of it's more subtle um, and some of it's it not. Uh, and so I, I can't, I don't really have a strong opinion on that other than to say that that's, that's an interesting, you know, perspective. And I, and I can understand how that viewpoint is certainly not represented a lot in film. Right. And we were talking a little bit about the Bechtel test earlier. Like it's, it's rare to see women acting this way in movies. So in that way, it's kind of interesting and, and unique and maybe has a place as a more artistic work. Um, I, I'm not going to challenge you saying it's boring or, or on the nose or heavy handed. Like, you know, that, I, I don't, yeah, I, I, I get it. Um, all I can say is that the second viewing helped me understand, I think a little bit more about what I think, if, I hope I don't get this wrong. I think her name is pronounced Brilat. Like, I think it's actually one of those times in French where you say the T. Um, <laughs> but anyways, I could be, I could be off. 
But what she was trying to do uh, in a lot of her movies was to like kind of poke the audience in the same way that like a Von Trier would do or, or a Von Trier would do or like a Gaspar Noé or like a Hanukkah. And she's, she's trying to, I mean, well, she is. She's, she's, she's saying like, like women can be this way as filmmakers as well. Uh, we can be shocking and we can, you know, we can sort of be on the same level and make shocking cinema. So I think in that sense, I, I respect it. We'll definitely not watch it a third time, but um, anyway. I think you mentioning Von Trier is like super interesting because one of the first films I wanted to like compare it to when I watched it was my distaste for his uh, film *Nymphomaniac*, and I have oh, wow. very similar criticisms of *Nymphomaniac*, where it has this ending that comes out of left field, and it's like, okay, Von Trier, I, I got you. I understand what you're saying. Thank you for beating me in the face with it again. <laughs> For four hours. At least this one's only 86 minutes. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, what about you, Adam? I saw you shaking your head a little bit on both when we were both talking. No, I know. I, I think you both bring up great points. The ending is def- like is not subtle in any way. It's it's as wild an ending. Like I'll never forget the ending. It's as wild an ending you could possibly hope for, or maybe hope's the wrong word, but it's as wild an ending you're, you'll probably ever see in a film. Um I do agree with a lot of what you're saying, Chris. I was getting those those sort of feelings. Obviously, this is my first time watching it. Um, but yeah, the, the main character, Anise, I think is how she, they pronounce her name, Anise. Um, yeah, she basically talks about the whole film uh, with her and her sister, Elena, how Elena is desperate for her first time to be with someone who loves her. And Anise completely opposite. She just wants it over and done with some stranger. So I do think what happens in the film is consistent with both girls' viewpoints. Obviously, they both happen in a very twisted way. Um, obviously, Elena says she wants to be with someone who loves her, and Fernando, being the typical fuckboy, basically spoon feeds her all the inf- all the information that her naive mind, you know, thinks he loves. Like, he, like she's made to believe that that he loves her when obviously he knows what he's doing. He's manipulating her. Essentially, she's too naive to really realize that, and. Anise obviously says she just wants her first time to be with some stranger, a one-time thing, and Catherine Brillat basically gives us the most extreme possible version of that, rather than, you know, a one-night stand in a bar, we see her literally raped. So it's it's playing to the extremes of what each character was wanting as their first time, but at, at the same time, it is, it is it is still consistent with their views, and I think despite, you know, we can say it's heavy-handed, we can say it's unsubtle, I think despite that, I'm happy that she was at least consistent. Now, tonally, the film does does have some weird tonal moments. Uh, like, the music, I don't know if anyone has caught this, the music in this film is so weird. It's just so bizarre. There's like this weird sort of acoustic guitar, and it's all in a minor, or a major key. And it's kind of like something you'd see on like a soap opera or something. It's just, it's just weird out of place music throughout this film. And I don't know if maybe she does that on purpose, to sort of make us feel maybe, maybe put us in a false sense of security or kind of the opposite, maybe make us kind of think, you know, why the hell is this weird music in here and kind of, kind of put us off a bit. But um, like, I think the film is really well directed. I, again, this I, I'd never seen a, a Catherine Brillat film before. I've heard she's controversial. You're, you're um, comparing her to Gaspar Noé. I was actually going to say the same thing. Um, you know, the vibe of this film be the same vibe of a Gaspar Noé film where he just doesn't really give a fuck. He will sort of try out everything and anything and put it on film in an uncompromising and unflinching way. 
which is obviously what's done in this film as well. There's no there's no compromises. There's not a lot of cutaways when when things get heavy. So yeah, like I said in my review, it was probably the best film I'll never watch again. Maybe I was a bit too maybe I was a bit too high in praise. It's probably not the well again, I suppose at the same time, any any of the films that I consider really great, I'd have no problem watching it again. And that's nothing to say about the filmmaking aspect of this. Like I think the film is relatively well made. I don't have any problem with the direction. I think the direction is really good. It's shot really intimately. Um especially the scenes between Aleda and, and Anise. And then, you know, once Anise becomes more alienated, the shots reflect that and show her sort of isolated and shots in sort of wide open areas, like on like the beach scene, for example. I, I think it's really well directed from a filmmaking point of view. The only reason I wouldn't watch it again is obviously it's it's a very heavy film to watch. Um, it's Yeah, and it's not something that generally, to be honest with you, I, w- I would never have watched this film myself personally, if not for the fact that it was chosen for the film club. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, I think it's a good film. Does it have its flaws? Absolutely, it does. But I still think it's a good film and it does have its merits. And I'm glad that I watched it. I'm glad that it's not like the kind of film where I think I've wasted an hour and a half of my life. I'm glad that I watched this film because I do think it is a good film. But it's a hard film to watch. And, yeah, some of the, the unsubtlety and the heavy-handedness of how it sort of shows the themes can can rub some people the wrong way. So I, I do understand where you're coming from and from your point of view, Zach. Um, I think it's very much a, a like like any sort of art, it is going to be very, very subjective on, you know, whether or not you enjoy it. And, you know, I guess I should at least put out there with my background um, that, you know, I've, I, you know, I work with kids for a living and it's specifically teenagers and stuff. So, you know, I guess I'm I'm going to react a little bit more harshly to things that I find really unsubtle when it feel like it wants to say something important because I'm like kids are smarter than people give them credit for and I guess in this way it just made right. it feel like this is just it, it it's kind of condescending and that could just be my own personal thing and why I took it like that when I watched it. It's just an interesting angle on that. What did you think of Harmony Karine's uh, kids? Um, oh, did you, ever, um, did you ever see that? That was maybe like a you know twenty twenty five years ago. You made that, or I don't know, maybe thirty now. Is that the? I'm I'm I'm, I'm I might be getting it mixed up with happiness. Is that the? Is this the one about the school shooting, or is it the woman Philip Seymour Hoffman? That's I'm trying actually, to remember. They're actually different films. So the one with the school shooting, I believe, is Elephant with Gus Van Sant. Yeah, that's the one. Philip okay. Seymour Hoffman is happiness. Uh, Harmony Corinne's kids is when if I've never seen it, but if if I remember correctly, it's like. A bunch of kids spreading AIDS, basically. I have not seen that. I've I've wanted to watch it, but I have not watched. I've, I've I was thinking for happiness at first, but I haven't seen kids. Yeah, Todd Solant is another one that's a very shocking kind of author. The guy that did Happiness, he likes to throw in very shocking stuff. But um, I think Corinne is up there as well. Like there, there's just I think there's some directors that they use the teenage or like adolescent years as ways of showing like a greater point, you know, because there's mm-hmm. so much. It, it's a very poetic time, right? There's so much change and there's so much transformation. And I think it's an interesting time. And I, I think you're, I hadn't really thought about it from the perspective of viewing them as real teenagers before. I love that you said that because you're right. In that case, I don't think this is how teenagers would necessarily act. Like they'd probably be a little more savvy than this, but as you know, like a metaphor, like an allegory mm-hmm. or like that, I think maybe the characterizations kind of worked for me. But th- this made me think of another question though. Cause I just, Y'all gonna 
think I'm strange, but I just watched Salo for a second time as well. Um, <laughs> based on some reading I had done that made me think like, okay, at some point in my life, I'm going to have to revisit this because I'm curious. And it's still incredibly hard to watch, but the, what he was trying, what Pasolini was trying to say about fascism and about like power structure, I think comes through a lot more in a second viewing because the, I think the brain just kind of knows like what it's getting into. And so I was curious if, if y'all have ever had an experience like that where you see something again and it kind of takes on a, a, a much different light uh, once you kind of understand what to expect. Because it happened to me both for Fat Girl and then Solo back to back um, here in the last few weeks. And I just thought that was, I don't know, I wasn't expecting it in either one. So I'm about to throw out everything I've just said and complained about with subtlety. And as hard as it is to say, because I have a ton of criticisms for it, but I do appreciate, you know, I know you just watched it for the first time uh, recently, Chris, but it's, it's Cannibal Holocaust. It's horribly unsubtle. It, it They even point out what the, like, the main theme of the movie is at the very end just to sort of try to tie it together uh-huh. um but there i don't know i, I think it comes for me it's more not me- necessarily thematically but just because i love the found footage genre you know that's kind of what got me into a lot of uh, horror movies um that there's something about it i appreciate more i watch it even if i have to ignore the things that it does that i completely disagree with i suppose just with art in general not just even with film the more you see something, I feel you're probably going to go either way on it. Like, there's plenty of examples I can give for films where I've seen maybe I liked it the first time, then I watched it the second time and didn't like it as much, and then vice versa, where maybe I liked something more the second time. I can't really think of something, I can't really think of an example off the top of my head for something like this, where maybe something took on a, a new meaning. And, you know, the more times you watched it, I suppose, like, one example I always give for something that I liked a hell of a lot more the second time would be Fellini's Eight and a Half. So, like, I first saw Eight and a Half when I was 17. I just don't think I was ready for it. And I didn't like it at all. And then I watched it again maybe about two or three years ago. And I loved it. So, I think, like all art, I think the more you sort of see something, you'll either grow a greater appreciation for it. You'll notice things you didn't notice before. You'll maybe view it in a different life, depending on, you know, where you are, what circumstances you're at. Or you'll think, Jesus Christ, this was terrible. Why did I like this? <laughs> <laughs> Which is basically my reaction to any Tarantino film. Um, Ooh, hot take. Oh, hot take, uh, hot take. Um, uh, which I won't go into. <laughs> but no, I'm, not, I'm, I'm maybe being a bit too harsh there on Tarantino. Um, but yeah, from that point of view, maybe fuck girl, if I watched it a year from now, like you did with a year between, maybe if I watched it a year from now, maybe I'll think completely different of it. Maybe I will think it was kind of too unsubtle and heavy handed and I'll be more in Zach's camp, or maybe I'll like it a lot more. And now that I know what's coming, kind of be able to read between the lines, kind of where, where you are standing from Chris. So um, it's, it's an interesting point to make up just about art in general, really, the more you sort of look at something, will you grow more appreciation for it or will you kind of see the faults more? I actually think uh, I'm going to, I'm going to take what Chris did. I'm going to wait about a year or so and I'm going to throw it on again. And just since I know you said you were a lot more negative on it the first time and just see how I react to it. Cause I mean, you guys know you're in a bad, if you're not in the mood for something like that, it's just like, well, that was horrible. And I never want to see it again. Yeah, totally. Totally. It's like what, um, what one of the guys was saying in the discord earlier about, uh, Antonioni's blow up mm-hmm. that you got to watch it in the right mood. If you don't, you'll hate it. 
So Fat Girl, I, I could definitely see Fat Girl being one of those films. If you're if you're not in the right mood, I can definitely understand that. Um, I suppose it's hard to be in a, in the right mood for a film yeah. like Fat Girl. <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah i think maybe maybe revisit it like for me with this like when i like my my letterbox rating for this changed three times over the course of a few days so i, I write my re- my reviews on letterbox pretty much the second i finish the film mm-hmm, I, do too. I don't really give it time to digest much in terms of like my core thoughts because i like just get them out there because otherwise i'll forget because i'm i'm just that kind of person so like when I first put up my review, I rated it three stars because I thought it was mm. just I thought it was just okay, and then the more, I just kept thinking about the film. It just it got stuck in my head, and the more I thought about it, the more I liked it, and it's eventually crept its way up to a four star review now. Because just the more I thought about the film, the more the more I liked it. Since we started the film club, there's only really been two films that we've watched that have just stayed stuck in my head. First was Chunking Express, which for good reason is just even though I've I've literally only seen it once that first week thirty weeks ago when we started the film club, it's just been stuck in my head the whole time. And, and Fat Girl's been stuck in my head for the last month at this stage since we watched that. So, yeah, I think I think it's the kind of film, like, I probably won't watch it again. I'll be, I'll be straight up and honest with you. If I am, it'll be a good few years before I bring myself to watch it again. But um, for me, anyway, it was kind of filmed over over a few days. The more I thought about it, the more palatable, and the more, the more, the more I liked it, really. And then the second movie that you will never forget is Images. For the wrong reasons. <laughs> because my hatred burns long and deep. I own that film on Blu-ray. I blind bought that <laughs> film. Like I didn't watch like when we watched it for the film club, I didn't watch it. I was not watching that film a second time. I watched that I watched that film a long time ago. I watched that film maybe back in like June or something before the film club even existed. I blind bought that film because I love three women. And I thought, this film sounds great. Any particular three women? Or are you talking about the movie from Altman? <laughs> no, these are Altman. <laughs> um, I did the same thing for Cannibal Holocaust. I have it on my shelf now because Grindhouse Releasing did like this really nice packaging of it. That's and, great. Um, I love that packaging. Yeah. I mean, honestly, it's, it's wonderful in terms of for fans of the film, but I'm not. Now I've got it sitting up on the shelf. <laughs> I'm the, curious. Did you watch the. Um... The animal, uh, the cruelty-free version or the full version? I watched the full version, which maybe I shouldn't have done, but I just wanted to actually experience it. Which, this is, I'm going to make this tangent as small as possible. It, you know, when I do watch the movie, though, it always makes me wonder why Cannibal Holocaust, it feels so much worse than something like Apocalypse Now, which kills a water buffalo with a machete on film, and it's never brought up. But no one sits there and says that movie should be condemned like Cannibal Holocaust. And, I, and I'm not saying it's right or wrong. It's just I always think it's interesting when I watch Cannibal Holocaust, I mean, um, Apocalypse Now, and I'm like, no one really talks about this water buffalo getting macheted to death. What about the snake on Friday the 13th? Yeah, yeah. That's the one I always remember. Like, they literally just chopped a snake's head off on Friday the 13th. And then you look at, like, The Godfather. They didn't kill the horse, but that, well, the horse was scheduled to die. <laughs> and they say, can we just use the head, please? Coppola just had no problem with it. He was like, yeah, that's fine. Honestly, Real that's a good point. You know, and like, okay, again, I know we're on a tangent, but so Diodato actually had remorse for that later in his career. He talked about how he wished he didn't do that. Then on the other hand, you have uh, Lindsay, who did Cannibal Ferox, who expressed no remorse for doing it and actually like, <laughs> is famous for pushing the actors to do more violence to the animals. 
So, you know, anyways, you have, it's, it's a little bit more of a nuanced discussion for sure when you start talking about other films that have it, but I think it's just so front and center and like the point of it that people have a problem with. Yeah. The, the one quick aside before we sort of wrap up this, um, this, this tangent at least, um, I, when you asked Chris the first, back in like the Discord chat or told him to watch the cruelty-free version, that just made me laugh my head off. <laughs> I don't because I thought I thought maybe you were joking because like when I think of like, cruelty free, I think of like my girlfriend's makeup that she buys that's like cruelty free, and it, it just I don't know why I thought it was so funny, but just yeah. seeing you should watch the cruelty free version, it just I don't know, it just made me roar my head off. <laughs> I mean, that was like their huge advertisement when Grindhouse put that out was like you can watch it without all the animal death. <laughs> Yeah, but that would actually I, I probably wouldn't mind watching the cruelty free version yeah cool any any more points on on fat girl any i'm just going through um just to try and uh, one thing i want to bring up kind of quickly because we talked about it a bit in the discord chat and it's kind of a tangent so i do apologize it's about like the um translations of foreign films into english mm-hmm. and like this, this I'm looking on the Wikipedia and it actually has a few different alternative titles. So like the original French, and I'm sorry for French listeners, friends of the podcast, je suis désolé about this uh, pronunciation. Um, uh, Amar Soir is like the original French title, which I'm led to believe does not mean fat girl. <laughs> um, and then right. according to Wikipedia, there's like three alternative titles, which is obviously fat girl. Um, for my sister, which apparently is very close to the literal translation of the title. And then, funnily enough, which I find hilarious, Story of a Whale. <laughs> oh, come on. Come I'm, not, on. I'm not making it up. Go to Wikipedia. Right? <laughs> literally, Story of a Whale is apparently oh, one of the on. alternative titles of this film. <laughs> what country was that? I'm cool. Oh, gosh, I don't know. It's banned in Ireland. It's definitely not here anyway. <laughs> I don't know, maybe Australia or something, but I thought that was, I just thought that was very funny. And um, it got a conversation going on the Discord about other films that had sort of weird translations. Uh, obviously, 400 Blows is brought up. Uh, I suppose a lot of French films are going to get brought up with this. Um, so I just wanted to bring that up really quickly. Just that I just thought Story of a Whale was funny. And I thought you guys would be interested to know that that's apparently one of the film's alternative titles. I, I prefer that title, honestly. Yeah. It just, it just reminds me of Squid and the Whale, the Noah yeah. film, which it reminds me of. <laughs> in Japan it was just called Virgin which is kind of an interesting take on it IMDB has like the also known as page oh cool I was looking on Wikipedia um, and there, yeah apparently there's there's a, it's all kind of related to that either fat girl or my sister's a virgin or something like that <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a Nickelodeon 90s, 90s TV show my sister's a virgin <laughs> <laughs> Anise yeah. explains it all <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> no, no, I don't really have too much else to say. I think you know it's funny where the imagination starts to connect the connects the the dots, or how how imagination connects dots. I think you know this film certainly brings up a lot of um, uh, rich discussion around like illicit material. So I feel like these tangents were all actually on theme. Uh, it's yeah. something about this movie that just it's it's a very like kind of uncomfortable and awkward movie to watch, which I know was by design, but. Uh, certainly brings up a lot of this other stuff we've been talking about. You know what bothered me the most in the movie, though? When, I, I can't remember their name, uh, the fat girl, we'll just get the, the titular <laughs> character, when she goes over to the diving board 
to put on suntan lotion and then puts on like four gallons on so her leg. Much. It bothered me so <laughs> I'm like, one, you're blocking the diving board and then you're being so wasteful. <laughs> what, uh, that's you, the big critique of this film is like the, the, the waste, the economic waste. <laughs> well, you know, that's, that is the one fun thing about when you hate a movie. You find the stupidest nitpicks about it and you're like, that is terrible and I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> like me and the jigsaw in images. <laughs> God, I hate the jigsaw so much. I'm just wondering what the budget was of Fat Girl and how much of that was spent on suntan lotion. <laughs> that'd be my if I ever met the director, that'd be the first question I'd ask. Like, how much did that cost? What did was the assume? percent bone above the budget taken? Especially multiple takes, right? Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. Yeah. You'd assume they did couple little takes on this. I, I was just again, I, I'm looking I never honestly I never go on IMDb. It's been a very long... I only ever go on there if we're going to be watching a somewhat iffy film and I want to know the parental guide stuff to know what to expect, which is a reason why I ventured on uh, for this film. And I've just noticed the plot keywords of this, which is female frontal nudity, breasts, sexuality, nudity, and loss of virginity. Those are apparently the plot keywords for, for this film. Which, when they showed the older sister, when they showed her naked, I had, the first thing I did was Google how old this girl actually was. I was like... They didn't really put a 15-year-old girl like this, did they? And she was 20. So I was like, okay. I feel a little 20? bit better. Okay. Yeah, she was 20. I just assumed, I just assumed the, the French are animals. Well, then the girl is actually 13. So when they showed, like, her breast, I was like, well, I guess it didn't matter either way. They were going to do one way or the other. I suppose they could. Uh, I was going to say they probably can't show her engaged in sexual activity. But then she gets fucking raped at the end of the film. <laughs> it's the French. The... The French. Viva la France. <laughs> I can't no find offense to any French listeners. Yeah, friends of the podcast, the French, the people of France, friends of the podcast. I can't find the budget on this film. They probably want to hide it for tax evasion reasons because they don't want to show the bank how much they spent on <laughs> on suntan lotion. Okay. Uh, all right. Welcome back to Collection Corner. This is the I'm broke because I spent everything in the the December edition. Um, I, you know, actually I, I did pick up a few things um, that, that I'll, I'll get to, but I wanted to bring attention. I, th I think there's this new label coming out that I'm interested in. So I went through and I did a, um, uh, a series, I, I guess, of writing on our Bellos films um, this past year. Uh, there's only eight titles, so it wasn't that hard to go through, do a complete run. Uh, and one of the guys, it turns out, from that, that actually did a lot of the preservation work, uh, restoration work for them. His name is Craig Rogers, and he's super active on Reddit, actually, and uh, is uh, on Letterboxd as well. He's very active. And so I just thought I'd send him a note and just basically say, like, hey, I like what you're doing. And he responded, which is super nice of him. So friend of the podcast, uh, Craig Rogers, uh, and I got to chatting a bit. And he's starting a new label called Deaf Crocodile. And they're like going to, yeah, it's pretty good. And here's the, here's the, the, the summary of it. it there, so launching in 2021, Deaf Crocodile Slate is focused on new, independent, or lost and unseen uh, world cinema with a special interest in animation, LGBTQ films, cult horror, fantasy, foreign cinema, and the work of emerging and established female filmmakers. Um, they're going to release four to six films a year. And so they start this year. So I thought I would, you know, I, I went through and signed up for his newsletter and um, it's just there's something fun in the air right now. I think this is a weird kind of byproduct of COVID. But when people are home so long, not, they don't really have much to do. I think 
physical media collecting really just took a like off like a skyrocket you know like it just it's been such a big boon here in the last i feel like 18 months or so um and it's giving some some people some confidence to go off and start new labels doing interesting more kind of obscure niche work uh which which i love um and always want to try to promote so dev crocodile uh films and uh you can see some of the the restoration work he did he included it on his website it's kind of fun he's a very talented I don't even know what you would call that restoration artist or whatever. Um, so I'll bring awareness to them. And then uh, the probably the the label that I want to talk about just really quick is Raro Video. So I picked up a few of theirs and uh, I just watched one of them, uh, which I was curious to see another uh, Ruggiero Diodato film after Cannibal Holocaust, just sort of to get a, a vibe for this guy. Like, who is this guy? Because that's what everybody talks about. So there's a, a movie he put out, which is a um, sort of lurid version of Polanski's Knife in the Water, uh, and it's called Waves of Lust. So speaking of subtle titles there, uh, <laughs> subtlety. Um, and it's interesting because it's a, like, uh, anyways, it's a skin flick. I mean, like, kind of call it what it is. But within the movie, he's he the characters each take on a very clear sort of metaphor for capitalism or like the people or uh, maybe maybe folks that are trying to strive up towards power. Uh, and he really like hammers it home on the, on the stereotypes uh, and the, to help prove his point. So it actually, I think it's actually a, a film that works as a piece of art. Um, and it kind of works on both levels. Like it has the, the women in it, if that's what you're in there for, but it also works as a, as a piece of art. Um, and I kind of got interested in Raro Video because what they do is every release, I've got about 20 now that I'm going to be slowly working through, and every release they have a booklet that gives a brief history. Um, and on the back, they print the, at uh, the back of the booklet, they print the uh, filmmaker's filmography, which not really practical in this age where it's like a click away on, uh, on any search website, but it kind of harkens back to the days. I don't know if any of y'all collected CDs back in the day. Um, but you know, they, typically with the old CD collecting, they would put like, here's the other work from this label, or here's the other work from the artist kind of on the back of the booklet. So it kind of harkened back to the old days, uh, where that's how you found out about new stuff. Uh, and, uh, their transfers are poor, but the special features are great. So I'm kind of curious to check out more of this label and they, they focus in just on Italian films that are like films you haven't heard of from the directors you have. That makes sense. <laughs> so cool. Yeah. What about y'all? Zach, um, yeah. Um, just on your Raro video, um, I would recommend their release for Hanging for Django. I, that's the only one I have, but I really enjoyed all the special features for it. So looking for something spaghetti western, definitely go for that. Um, I haven't gotten a lot uh, the last couple weeks. Uh, I've been just kind of finishing up a couple things on my John Carpenter stuff, you know, double dipping because. Who doesn't need six copies of Halloween or the thing? In case the <laughs> yeah. other ones break, of course. Um, but actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna concentrate on one. I actually just watched it recently, um, and somebody on the Discord who's one of their favorite movies is uh, Possession, uh, done through Mondo Vision. Um, I don't have anything else they've ever done, um, but I really love the case of this. It's really well done. Uh, it's really nice. It's got a nice booklet and everything with it. And I finally got to watch the movie for the first time uh, very recently after owning this copy for two and a half years and never watching it, um, just as a random recommendation, 
it's pretty good. Uh, other than that, I got a steel book from Big Trouble in Little China and uh, Someone's Watching Me, which was a Carpenter TV movie uh, where he kind of did a De Palma Hitchcock thing. And it, it was good. So not a whole lot here for me. So, Adam, I'll let you take it. <laughs> you really are going deep in your Carpenter collection of your yeah. if you're collecting his TV movies now. <laughs> yeah. you're, I'll get you're Elvis really soon. Deep. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, possession. You just reminded me of Possession because there's no Region B release, and I've been wanting to see it for a long, long time. Um, so now that I'm Region Free, actually, I might try and see if they do. I don't think. Do I remember there was like a limited edition? Uh-huh. They're both I, done by Mondo Vision. They have a standard. They have a standard as well. That, that one I have cool. is a standard, and it's still really nice. There's a 4K awesome. that just came out too. It might even be. Oh, in France. Yep. Yeah. Sorry, what was that? France just put out a 4K. Ah, uh, see, I'm not 4K. I only Blu-ray oh. at the moment. Yeah. I'm very tempted to go to 4K, but I'm I, I just went region free, so I'm, I'm not ready to take that leap just yet. Oh, cool, nine dollars. <laughs> I am ordering possession soon. And next thing I do, next time I do, I'm going to wait until the um, I'm going to wait until some of the Criterion releases for region A come out, and I'm going to do like a bulk order because just just saves me paying a ton on shipping. Um, you know, just for one thing. So I'll put I'll put possession in my basket, uh, ready to. Because I've been wanting to see that for a while. Um, yeah, kind of similar. I've just been picking up some random pieces here and there. Nothing too special. Uh, I got a couple of Eureka films in uh, Ace in the Hole um, from Billy Wilder, if I remember correctly. I haven't watched it yet. Um, pick up on South Street from Sam Fuller. Um, I'm a big Sam Fuller guy and Pick Up a Sister was really good. But the one I'm going to talk about is another Eureka release. And I'm now going to call Eureka friends of the podcast because they sent me this release about a week early uh, when I pre-ordered it. So yeah. Eureka, Master Cinema, you are friends of the podcast. Um, I do actually have a review. Sorry to plug the website again, but I do have a review of this film uh, up on the website. Um, it's called The Last Warning. Uh, it was a, an early film, 1928 in the USA. Uh, directed by a guy called Paul Lenny, um, who was a German who was working in the expressionist movement and then came over to the United States to work around the same time that Lubitsch would have, uh, a lot of these sort of German guys would have started emigrating over to the States to make movies in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a really, really interesting film. It was made in two versions, both a silent version and a sound version. The sound version is considered lost, and apparently that's a good thing because the contemporary reviews for it were not very good because of the limitations at the time. They found the dialogue was just very clunky and just kind of killed a lot of what was going on. I, so obviously I watched the silent version, and I thought it was absolutely great. The, the intertitles were so creative. So many different fonts, so many different things. Like there was one intertitle where these two characters come in, and they're basically both saying the same thing. So they have one intertitle card with the two same pieces of dialogue, one under the other, and then they then merge into one big piece of dialogue to sort of say oh. they're saying at the same time. Oh, and cool. it's full It's full of really, really creative title cards. It's really great in that respect. The story um, is kind of, it's kind of just your sort of standard horror mystery kind of story. Basically, it's this uh, this play that was going on in a theater and during the production one of the cast members was killed and his body then disappears and obviously the whole play gets shut down as a big investigation but nobody can figure out the mystery and all the characters are brought back together about five years later 
to perform the play again, but somebody is trying to sabotage what's going on, and obviously the police are there to try and figure out, you know, what what's going on. Uh, so the the plot is pretty sort of standard, but it's just told so creatively. Obviously, the, the title cards, as I said before, but the visuals are just really incredible. The camera movements are like something you wouldn't really see in this kind of film or this era of film, I should say. This the camera in this era is normally very static, but in this it just moves around so much. They must have had it on some kind of contraption because it was almost like they were doing dolly shots before obviously dollies were a thing that it was like the camera was swooping it was going up and down different levels it was shooting at these really crazy oblique angles um just really really creative filmmaking really ahead of its time in terms of its camera work um so yeah i thought it was a really great film um the packaging from eureka is really nice it's a really great transfer there's like a few maybe sort of hisses and pops on the visual on, on the on the film you know it does have that grain but it's not like it's like 2d it is a definitely like a 1080p presentation it's from a 4k scan apparently and um, so it is it is really good quality um some really really good um booklet like all eureka stuff was a really good booklet and the kind of odd thing for this film which i found a bit bizarre when i looked it up afterwards uh, it has a new score, so it's not like the original score that first came at the film. It, it was yeah. like a brand new score made from scratch. And it was made by this guy called Arthur Barrow. And whenever I see like um you know, people who do new scores for these silent films, I always like to look up the composer to see, you know, if they've done anything else or what they normally do. And this guy, Arthur Barrow, he's not like just a normal film composer. He was Frank Zappa's bass guitarist in the seventies and the eighties. Oh, wow. So, like, he wasn't, like, just this normal stuffy... And you would never know, like, the score is just, like, a, a sort of... Sta- well, I say standard classical score. There's so much different genres brought into it, and it's a, a really, really creative score. But, yeah, I just, I was just so shocked. I thought it was on the wrong Wikipedia page when I looked up the guy. And I'm like, there's no way Frank, uh, Frank Zappa's bassist is the guy who did this. And then I went to look at his credits, and lo and behold, he's credited for not just this, but tons of other silent film compositions. So, obviously, a really talented guy. Um and I just thought that was really fun and interesting. So, yeah, The Last Warning, uh, Paul Enney, uh, the release from Eureka, really, really great. If you're region free or if you're like me in region B, uh, definitely recommend picking it up. It's really, really good. That, that reminds me of um, uh, something. I, I don't know what you said. Maybe think about this. Maybe just people nowadays restoring old classic films or something. I don't know, something that triggered that I forgot to bring up that I'm super excited about. So Severin Films, which is, uh, I don't know how much y'all know about them, but they do a lot of horror and genre filmmaking uh, releases. They have something coming out in May that I'm so pumped about. It's called, it's a nine disc set called The Euro Crypt of Christopher Lee. Mm-hmm. I saw and it, saw it. That? Yeah, it looks so good. Oh my God, it looks amazing. So five movies. And then the thing that I'm maybe even more excited about is they actually went back and restored 27 episodes or 24 uh old episodes of Christopher Lee hosting a uh, horror show, um, kind of in the way that Hitchcock did. I, I don't know. I haven't seen it, but I, just what a fun, interesting find for them. And I can't wait. May can't get here fast enough. I, lo- I love when companies do that, when they just they just release just some just something weird and random and, out, and just out of the blue. Um, obviously, I know there's a lot more companies for that, you know, in the U.S., like the likes of Severin and stuff. Like Eureka do it, so like obviously Eureka are not don't just have a Masters of Cinema collection. They have like another sort of non-Masters of Cinema releases. 
and they're actually just announced recently a limited edition set of uh, Boris Karloff at Columbia, where it's like a bunch of like old Boris Karloff films that I'm I've never heard of it in my life. Like one of them is called The Boogeyman Will Get You. Like these are the kind of films uh, that they've collected that they've um, done uh, like uh, high definition um, scans of and are putting out in this set. So I, I do love when when companies just sort of just go out on a limb and just release something absolutely bonkers like that. It's great. Yeah, totally. All right, and now we're gonna have a little discussion on the Night of the Hunter. Uh, it's about a religious fanatic marries a gullible widow whose children are reluctant to tell him where their real father hid their $10,000 he had stole during a robbery. So um, apparently you had the most controversial take based on Reddit, uh, Adam. So I guess I'll let you go first. I don't know what the hell was going on with that one. <laughs> I was getting downvoted. And all I did was say how great the film is. Uh, yeah. I don't know if this is, I don't know. Maybe this is controversial, but I think it's the best film ever made. Um, I don't, I literally cannot name a single flaw in the film. I think it has a lot more perfections than it could have to being anything considered a flaw. Um, everything about it, like in terms of you look at the main components of what makes a, a film great in terms of characterization, plot, direction, cinematography, production design, this film has it all, you know, and it's it's such a different film from from what you would see not just in this era but just in general it just has this atmosphere and i'm so glad that i wasn't the only one to bring it up because the, the sort of fairy tale atmosphere when i was seeing other people saying that in their reviews i felt so vindicated because I, I at least i knew i wasn't sort of reading into something that i that you know that maybe wasn't there um yeah this film for me is perfect i wouldn't change a single thing about it um yeah, I'm probably I'm gonna I'm just gonna sing this film's praises the whole time. So maybe if someone has a more controversial take, they might want to take over because I only have good things to say about this movie. Honestly, if somebody hates this movie, they're probably gonna hate this segment of the podcast because I think we all have pretty positive if, opinions about it. If someone hates this movie, they shouldn't be listening to this podcast because it means they don't like film. So <laughs> there you go. Uh, there, there's. A German uh, female director named Lotte Reininger um, that um, was somebody who was like really pushing the limits of what you could do with animation. She made what's considered, depending on who you talk to, the first or the third full-length animated film back in 1926 called The Adventures of Prince Ahmed. And she, for her visual style, she took from like a Southeast Asian uh, puppet, kind of like puppet shadowing style of animation. And it allowed her just to have a lot of creativity and for a film in 1926 to have things like flying carpets and dragons and monsters that kind of transform and just this amazing, like really like kind of explosion of the imagination. But it was very daring to do, right? Because there, there wasn't a lot of precedent for this. And, and she had the big potential of financial failure and ruin after trying this and it worked for her. And I am really sad to hear that it didn't work for Charles Lawton because I feel like there's a lot of similarities in what I saw him try to do with this. Like, if you look at the other films that came out in 1955, it's a very boring year for, for cinema. Uh, if you look at, oh shoot, I just closed the tab down, hold on. Um, that's not as, it's not as compelling if I can't mention any of them. Um, but if you look at the movies that came out that year, it's like East of Eden, which is fine. To Catch a Thief, which is kind of a middle one for Hitchcock. 
Um, you know, Guys and Dolls, which again is fine. Rebel Without a Cause. I mean, these are all considered classics, but there's none of them that are just like grip you and like pull you to that year and say like, you've got to look deeper into 1955. And in that group of, you know, mediocre, like to, to, to high-end classics, I guess, but nothing really like compelling. This story comes out that's completely unique, completely out of left field, visually, artistically, and it was hated, unfortunately. And it's such a tragedy because maybe it was a marketing department fail, or maybe people weren't ready for it. Maybe he was just ahead of his time. But like, I don't know if I'm ready to call it the greatest movie ever made, but it's probably going to be the most memorable in terms of the experience of watching it for me. You know, like the, the I think that just in the same way that Michel Gondry always kind of captures my imagination with what he does with perspective and angles. I feel like this film, I just, I was like, I couldn't take my eyes off the screen because you'd have a regular 1950 kind of black and white shot of like a family talking. And then all of a sudden it would pull back or cut. And it almost as if you were in an animated film because of the way they use backdrops and lighting and dark, dark shadows to make it to where almost all the characteristics were stripped off their face. Like every choice that was made was brilliant. I think it was, it was just, it killed me that this was not received better in its time and that he didn't have a long film career. We're talking about him as one of the greatest filmmakers. And, and you know, uh, Chris, you were talking about, you know, maybe the reasons behind that were, you know, him being ahead of his time or, um, and I think that that's a big part of it too. Um, I mentioned a little bit of that in my write up, but one thing I think is it's, I'm not going to say it's mean spirited by today's standards, but I, when I think of 1955, I could definitely see this as being, you know, it's a story essentially about making two kids orphans. And I, I think that is going to be something that's really rejected during that time. Um, you know, you hear Eisenhower era and stuff like that. And I think that was, that pushed a lot of people the wrong way. Yeah, I'd agree with that in terms of like figuring out why it wasn't loved at the time uh, when it came out. Um, yeah, it's it's definitely not your standard 1955 film. I did something similar, Chris. I was looking at films that were made in that year. And I, I suppose I wasn't really looking more at whether the films are good or not. I was more so looking at from a content point of view and that era, you get a lot of decadent films, like The Catch a Teeth is decadent, you know, sort of Monte Cristo kind of setting. The Seven Year Itch was the same year, so you have like Marilyn Monroe and stuff. So you'd have a lot of films around that time that were, you know, films that where people wanted escapism and they wanted to, they wanted, they wanted to be these sort of cool, beautiful, sophisticated characters. And then you have this film that came out towards the back end of the noir era. People were kind of done with noir around this time they didn't really want anything dark and deep and melodramatic and this film pulls out all the stops to be as dark as possible um obviously the the shot of of willa and the water is, is is obviously iconic and it's so it's so dark you know especially mm -hmm. for that era you wouldn't really expect to see a shot like that um so I, I i'd love to know how they pulled it off actually like yeah. i actually don't uh, know how they yeah. did that but it looks yeah. great I would assume it's some kind of water tank and then they were sort of filming through the glass with like a mm -hmm. dummy or something. But yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a breathtaking shot. Um, so yeah, as to, as to why the film wasn't loved at the time, I can only assume it's basically that just people just weren't wanting something like this. They, It's, it's post-war era. People wanted something lighter. People didn't want to be reminded of the dark days. They just wanted some escapism. So I, I can only assume that was why 
And it's obviously a pity Charles Lawton didn't direct more. Obviously, he starred in, in so many films. He's probably one of the most celebrated actors of the early 20th century in cinema. Um, so we're very lucky to still have that. Um, so around Charles Lawton, I, I, kind of, I kind of find it funny when people talk about the fact that this was Lawton's only film. And it's almost like people forget how good of an actor and how mm-hmm. how influential Lawton was just in cinema in general, like not away from this film, like not obviously the films he starred in and also the people he um, he discovered, like he discovered Maureen O'Hara and brought her to Hollywood. So he was a very influential figure. People kind of talk about him. Some people at least kind of talk about him like a Herc Henry kind of person who made Carnival of Souls and then never did a single thing again when he was so much he was so much more than that he worked with some of the greatest directors of all time he, you know so he obviously he got a lot of influence from the right places is what i'm trying to say um and obviously having someone like Stanley cortez who if i'm honest with you i didn't know a ton about Stanley cortez until very recently i just kind of assumed he was just a normal cinematographer um and maybe he just did a bit of work but he worked with so many great directors as well. He worked with Fritz Lang. He worked with Orson Welles. Mm-hmm. He worked with um, Samuel Fuller. So, like Lawton, obviously, he knew a lot about film. This is more towards the end of his acting career. So he had so much experience with film and working with, with great directors and great filmmakers and great visionaries. And obviously having Stanley Cortez at his side, I can totally understand how he was able to pull this off. This is not like a, a miracle film where it's like, oh, this, this is like the best debut film ever made, so sorry he didn't make any more. I can definitely understand how he was able to pull off something so great with the with, with his intelligence and, you know, with his experience in the industry for, you know, the three decades prior to this film being made. Yeah, no, well, that's a good um, point. I was just going to note that um, one thing I just kind of thought was a fun fact is this was actually based off of a true story that happened in from uh, by a serial killer in West Virginia in the 1930s. Mm. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, so in a, a sense, this is also kind of like a uh, true crime sort of thing. Of course, that one ends a lot more tragically than this one does, if that's <laughs> possible. But um, yeah, and then, of course, it went on to be um, made into a book. And I, I'm guessing none of us here have read it. If I'm going to take a random guess, <laughs> I didn't know it was a book. <laughs> I, I didn't know until I started looking into it um, when I first watched it. But yeah, apparently it's based off of a book that's based off of a serial killer from West Virginia, um, where this guy pretty much pulled a similar scam. Of course, they're they're kind of making it a little bit simpler here. What he did, his name was Harry Powers, I believe. So they didn't even change the name a whole lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he would take out those. Um, love ads you know the uh, craigslist personals back in the 30s equivalents and newspapers and he and find widows uh find out where their money was murder um the wife and the kids and start it all over again like a really dark individual um and surprisingly as many serial killers we have in the u.s he's not one that's brought up a lot and he probably is one of the darker ones especially in that era probably because you have so many to be fair yeah, yeah, we have quite a few. <laughs> Overabundance of serial killers, it's hard to choose. It's kind of like choosing your favorite movie. There's too many to choose. There's <laughs> yeah. too many. You got to make like a top 20 
and then or maybe like a top 100 and then a top 20 that's you do that with serial killers in america as well and and then what you can do is you can have like three guys on a podcast dissect why anybody would put those serial killers in their top 20 <laughs> i am bundy uh, wasn't that impressive <laughs> you have ed Gein at number 19 what the hell <laughs> <laughs> uh that's funny I, actually uh Zach, that reminds me of the, your review. I don't know how much you want to talk about it, but I think that's a good tie-in to kind of your your take on the film because I hadn't thought about it from... Yeah, there was something you said, which I'm going to spoil it for people. I'm sorry if you didn't want to get too much into it, but a buffer between the monster horror movies that were coming out kind of in the 20s, 30s, you know, maybe early, even 40s a little bit, and then the the horror of, of man or like the horror of, of you know, like the uh, slashers and like a lot of that later on. Um, I don't know if you want to elaborate on that, but that really struck me as something that it was a great take and i'd never thought about yeah um of course i i have a deep love for slasher movies um and you know they of course dominated the 80s especially and to the point where they're so oversaturated now nobody wants to touch them as much but there there is this dead area i'm not gonna say dead but there is this loss of identity that you have kind of in between the universal monster era and the slasher era um where horror didn't really know what it wanted to be. Of course, you had a lot of the sci-fi stuff coming out, like the original The Fly and stuff like that, but there, it didn't have that strong presence that it, that those two major eras did. And what I liked about Night of the Hunter is it took both of those elements. It took out the 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 buffer that of the supernatural monster and instead just allowed the human to be there in its place while still making it feel like a story you know we talked about the fairy tale aspect adam mentioned that and it's break almost like breaking that apart and i think that's what kind of gives it this this hard-hitting punch is that realization that this is there's a reality to this and that it's not just a story it's something that can happen to anyone and of course that is the basis of uh black christmas and halloween and of course even before that uh psycho and um pals mm-hmm. peeping tom um and i think it i think it's an insanely important in that his, historically for both the monster era and the slasher era that would come out later yeah that's that's such a great point like even after you said it i was sort of just thinking back on the film and you know, thinking about the mannerisms of Powell and obviously voice notwithstanding and intelligence notwithstanding, but in terms of physical presence, it just reminds me so much of Karloff as Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Just his hulking movements. And he's obviously like, you know, Powell or Robert Mitchum, I should say, is, you know, he's a, he's a big buff dude. You know, he's, 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 not, a, he's not a small, small skinny guy. And it's just his, yeah, it's just his physicality, especially when he was like, you know, chasing the kids from the basement or, um, mm-hmm. you know, when he's sort of stalking around, he just, he, he has that Karloff-esque physicality, which again, kind of even reminds me a bit then of Michael Myers, where yeah, absolutely just has that sort of square shouldered, tall, looming presence, if you get me. Um, so that was a really great point to read and you put up your review. I thought that was something I just didn't think about at all, but it made so much sense after you said it. I'm just glad no one was annoyed that I, I I was forcing more genre films to be discussed at our house films. Just wait until Criterion puts out like title 2000 and they're like, okay, now what are we going to do? 
Like it's gonna it's gonna be the era of genre filmmaking. Criterion's not too far behind on this. Um, but I I think that you know I, I listened to about the first five minutes of the commentary. Um, uh, just I, I was just curious to hear kind of the introductions and maybe some of the you know they always kind of do like a summary in the beginning of a commentary, and uh, it's on the Criterion channel still actually. If you all have a chance, it's a it's a really interesting commentary because they get one of the second unit directors on um, to talk about the experience of making the film. And the first thing he says is, you know, this film is is about the battle between good and evil, light and dark, love and hate. Um, and I think that's what really, what I love so much about your point, Zach, kind of tying it back into what they were, what the direction they were kind of going with in the commentary, which is that it's something that comes up in a lot of films, you know, horror films or, or, or thrillers or dramas, this, this battle between light and dark. Um, and it might be the best one to do that, both visually and in story. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, right? Because that, that is so Absolutely. easy to make that topic cliche and cheesy and, and not good. Um, but they, I think the way that they shot it visually and the way they told the story makes it like a, a very good representation of that struggle, which is, is I don't know, I latched on to. For me, I think that good versus evil is not between the Harpers and Powell, though, because John and Pearl they're still protecting their criminal father. And I brought this up on someone's review. I can't, someone was mentioning about the ending, um, which I won't spoil here. Um, Cause yeah, it's not as, it's not as crazy as fat girl's ending. Um, so I, I don't want to spoil it, but someone was asking, you know, about the film or the film's ending and why John did what he did. And for me, it all harks back to what set the plot in motion and what set the plot in motion was this stolen money, this dirty money. And John essentially was suffering from the sins of the father by protecting the stolen money. It was kind of like, you know, the sins of the father, that sort of biblical idea that they're passed down from father to son. Uh-huh. You know, John was protecting the stolen money that his father, you know, it's, you know, it's not like, it's not like it was like an old family inheritance money. It was stolen and a man was murdered for this money. It, it's almost cursed. Um, so for me, the, the actual sort of good versus evil battle is not between the Harpers and Powell because really they're both f- fighting for the same sort of evil end, essentially, of keeping the stolen money. Um, it's probably more so between Powell and and Miss Cooper, yep. who she is just an apt, like I, I called her like the fairy godmother of this film. And it's more so just because of, of the opening sort of shot where it's like a, where her face is lit up in the starlight and she's telling the story of the children. It's like she has an, an omniscient presence in the film, uh, especially like at, like at the end, she even breaks the third wall, um, or the fourth wall, I should say. She breaks the fourth wall at the end of the film and it's almost like she sort of realizes that's why I kind of call her like a fairy godmother character. And I think her, like her and Powell are just like they're just polar opposites. They're just two forces mm-hmm. of nature in their respective sort of sides i'm kind of talking like damon lindelof here and um, we're talking about good and evil being forces of nature and things like that i'm going a bit lost on it um but um yeah i, I think the sort of dynamic between when when miss cooper comes into the film i think the whole film just changes the first hour is just so dark and you can say depressing but it, yeah dark is the best way to really put it and even though she comes up comes you know a bit crotchety and a bit strict she intensely cares for the children that are under her care and she will do everything to protect them to, to protect them from what she calls the the wolf in sheep's in sheep's clothing with oh. harry powell um 
So I definitely think there's a power struggle there. Um, but yeah, what really sets it off is is the whole is the money, the stolen money. If if that didn't come into play, obviously the whole plot never happened. So it is kind of almost like a red herring or something, um, or a Chekhov's gun. You know, it's something that that gets the sort of plot moving. But it's like I don't think that the Harper, even though look, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna call John Harper a and too bad he's like a 10 year old kid at the end of the day he's just doing something he promised his dad before his dad got taken away but the fact that he was himself doing an evil deed by holding the the money does not exactly make him a, a, a character of you know going by the force of good if that makes sense uh, a slight different take on what you just said is i think it's actually a battle for the children's souls i don't think that i don't think it was like I didn't perceive it as the children were meant to represent good. I think it was ah. when Cooper came in, I think it was like they were both battling for their souls. Like, were these kids going to be choose money and like all that goes with it or ha- finally see an example of love and good and and sort of choose that, you know, so to speak. And, and I think that's anyways, that's what maybe very slightly different way of saying, I think, a similar thing. Yeah, um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, so kind of like the battle for the idea that evil is through nurture and. You know, even someone like Powell wasn't born evil. He became evil through his life, and the children could end up the same way. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I, I definitely feel, see that. I'm trying to think of something else I want to bring up. I'm just looking through, I was looking through uh, Charles Lawton's filmography. <laughs> he worked what? with so many good directors. You yeah. know, uh, one thing, there was actually a decent amount of humor in the night of the hunter that I remember the first time I watched it, I didn't really expect. And it's just little small things, but probably the one that I thought was the funniest was when after he kills their mom and he's talking to the neighbors and they're all like, I don't know what's gotten into her and all this other stuff. And he's like, Satan. And I'm like, (laughs) and she's like, Oh, that's right. I'm like, that's awesome. Oh yeah. Well, it's just pure, purely radicalized that town. Like I love that scene (laughs) sort of shortly after, he's married to Willa and obviously there's the first scene where she, you know, it's on their wedding night. She goes to consummate the marriage and he's like, Oh no, this is, you know, that's what Satan wants you to do and all this stuff. <laughs> and the next thing we see here, she's like a completely wide eyed lunatic cult, cult wife, you know, it's yeah. a complete change in her characterization. Um, the part that gives me a little bit of a chuckle, I suppose, is like Powell's opening monologue when he's driving in his, in his car. He's like, how many wives is that now? Lord five. <laughs> maybe, maybe six <laughs> it's yeah. just, he just there talking to himself about all the terrible things he does I just I, I thought that was kind of great um yeah Lawton worked with so many good people you said you were gonna oh. did you did you say you were gonna watch the old dark house I didn't I, I'm gonna see it tonight actually okay because Charles Lawton's in that that's the only reason why I brought it up no he's an incredibly accomplished actor as well as like on Broadway he did a ton so he's like a very uh yeah I just I guess I should have clarified by director but no I mean the guy's like a legend for sure Oh yeah, absolutely. And like, I didn't even realize until, you know, I started looking them up. Like, again, I was one of those guys who thought when Night of the Hunter, he just came out of nowhere and just made this film. And like, like, um, you know, like, like Herc, is it Herc Henry or Herc Harvey? The guy who made, is it Herc Henry, the guy who did Carnival of Souls? I think Harvey, but yeah. Herc Harvey. No, it's, it's definitely Herc something. Uh, I'm actually going to look it up now because it'll annoy me. There's an interesting scene, a featurette on that, um, on that Blu-ray that, that talks about, he was like making uh, uh, industrial films. Yeah, yeah, industrial. yeah. I watched, yeah, I watched that short at uh, the the extra. It's really, really interesting. 
because he gets annoyed when people ask him why did you only make one film like i made thousands of films yeah right <laughs> they just weren't features they're were just industrial education films yeah out of like ladder safety and stuff yeah herc harvey that was him herc harvey because i thought charles lawton was another one because everyone talks about oh charles lawton or night hunter's great the director when he made one film so i just thought he was another one of those guys until i looked him up and i thought and i saw oh well this guy's obviously a very accomplished actor like yeah. he worked with james whale cecil b demille alfred hitchcock charles vidor john renoir jules dassin oh yeah king vidor and this guy worked with so many david lean like he, billy wilder he oh yeah witness of the prosecution i have that on blu-ray um he was in spartacus apparently i haven't seen spartacus so i can't say for sure it's one of the kubricks i haven't seen um yeah he's in he worked with so many great directors it's kind of not a surprise that he was able to make such a great film himself so now we come to our final segment, which as always is any other business where we just talk about a film that we saw recently that we want to shout out. It doesn't have to be Criterion. It doesn't have to be good. Just something that we like that we want to talk about. So um, who will we start with? TikTok, TikTok. We'll go with you, Zach. What have you seen recently that you liked? Um, it's funny because I was just telling you guys about the Warriors thing I was going through. Um I'm not very familiar with Walter Hill. I've never watched a lot of his stuff, but I did watch a film of his called Southern Comfort. Um, it has a pretty good cast, and it has uh, Powers Booth. It has um, Fred Ward. Um, it has oh, it has one of the Carradines in it. I don't know which one. I think it's Keith Carradine. Um, but as, essentially, it's kind of a mixture of Deliverance meets Dog Soldiers in the <laughs> sense that it's... Uh, about these army recruit guys who are in Louisiana down in the swamps and they're supposed to like, basically they're supposed to go to this thing for a, a training retreat, this area in the swamp. And well, because of like all the rain and stuff, that area is underwater or the way they were going to get there is underwater. So they decide that they find these like canoes sitting out and they're going to take them. And so they don't have to double all the way back. And one of the, brilliant brilliant army guys decides to take his m16 filled with blanks and shoot it towards the uh cajuns who have no idea they're blanks obviously and they end up shooting their sergeant so it's kind of in a way a very budget vietnam like it, it is the only way i could ever see a vietnam movie being done on the world's cheapest budget um and it goes through a lot of the thematic the same thematic stuff but it it's it's a lot of fun it, it goes through um a, a lot of like emotional beats you wouldn't expect um but i highly recommend it, it it's a it's fun it's a really quick movie um but it's the, one of the few like war movies you're going to watch that isn't really a war that kind of keeps the fun aspect of it cool I don't know why when you said Fred Ward, I pictured the guy who played Robin in the <laughs> in the Batman series of Adam West, and then I had to look it up, and it's like, oh, that's Burt Ward. I was like, Jesus, why is he in this kind of film? Uh, <laughs> Trimmers, if you're looking for Fred Ward. Oh yeah, okay. I I just I don't know why. I just the name Ward just threw me, and I thought, why is why is Robin in this kind of weird action film? <laughs> that would be great, though. <laughs> what about you, Chris? Uh, well, um, Zach, how many movies have you seen this year? Because you have a goal of 500 for the year, right? 
Uh, I'm a little bit behind on my thing. Uh, I mean, I just hit 50 last night. Okay. Um, at at this pace, I'll watch about 425. I think when I did the pace. Blackers. That's that's awesome. Yeah, I've got. I'm actually just over 50 as well. But I start a new job on Tuesdays, and that's going to drop precipitously. <laughs> so I should be able to catch up. Good. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I just looked up really quick to see if Walter Hill was related to Jack Hill. I've seen a bunch of Jack Hill movies recently. Um, are you familiar with that guy? A little bit, yeah. He, yeah, like there's this one called Spider Baby, which is just phenomenal. I know Spider Baby. That's the one. So fun. Uh, and then another one called Pit Stop, which is a fun kind of like um, car race, like, mm-hmm. around, like drama set around a, a racetrack, I guess. And then he's probably most famous for doing like Foxy Brown and Coffee. Mm-hmm. and But – I don't think Walter Hill's related to him. Um, anyways, I, I was I was hoping that would be a fun little Hollywood connection there, but uh, common last name, I guess. Um, the the one I want to talk about, I uh, in between or sorry, after seeing Solo and Cannibal Holocaust, I wanted to get those out of the way, like back to back, so I could just kind of get them out of my system. Um, I, I decided it was time to finally start the Fellini's, um, the march through all of Fellini's works for this year. I had been slowly collecting all of his films last year with the goal of of making this the year that I that I do that. Um, and the last one came in in kind of late January from Italy. It took like three months to get in, but I have it. But so anyways, so I have all of the, anything he did feature length, including the TV doc uh, Clowns, which is apparently pretty wild. Um, and then uh, also all of his collaboration work that he did. There's a, there a big deal in the, in the 60s and 70s, apparently in Italy to get like all of the well-known directors together and make like, uh, you know, some collaborative works where they like anthology works, I guess, uh, for comedies. So I, though I got all those as well. I'm, I'm two in now. I've seen Variety Lights. And then I just last night saw The White Shake. Um, and God, it's just, I don't know, maybe it's just more the way that my brain works or something. But it's especially after seeing those like <laughs> like terrifying movies. It's so refreshing. I love, I love Fellini so much. There's something about Italian filmmakers for me that like, especially like the whole neorealism movement, like Ormi did it as well, where you just take relatively normal situations and put characters in it. And you hire a lot of non-actors and you go out and you film and you put just a few elements in the film that are kind of fantastic or, or, or extraordinary. Um, and Fellini did it better than anybody. Uh, and I love, you know, I don't know how much, have y'all seen either one of those movies before, Variety Lights or White Shake? No, I went to go actually watch The White Shake earlier after reading your review and Criterion Channel doesn't have it. I'm, I'm waiting to see when they're going to add all the Fellini stuff like they did with Vardo's sets and yeah. the Bergman set. They added all those onto the channel. So I'm hoping they all come onto the channel as well because after reading your review, I got the white shake sounded really great so i went to go watch it earlier but i obviously i didn't then because it wasn't on the channel it's fun yeah i've seen probably i don't know six or seven Fellini movies at this point and this is the most straightforward just comedy that he did uh which is interesting because he has antonioni writing with him uh and then i guess you know this is another kind of point that i was i was thinking about i didn't know much about him to be honest as other than i've seen eight and a half and armor cord and La dolce vita i guess before i started this maybe one more but just like Kurosawa did, and, and got me thinking about if other filmmakers did this, he he made a lot of his movies with the same people. Uh, and in this case, it's writers. But if you look through his filmography, almost 
almost all of his films, if not all of them, the names Tullio Pinelli and Ennio Flaiano come up in, in most of them as collaborators uh, and co-writers on his films. Um, and I just, you know, Kurosawa had his, his, like there was between three or four other writers on almost every one of his films as well. Um, and it's just interesting that, you know, I guess that you talk about filmmaking is never done on an island and at least with these two, you know, sort of well-respected and well-known directors that I've been working through, it certainly feels that way. Uh, whether it's a cast of common actors or, you know, or a common crew, they just, it's like a, it's like a movement almost. It's not just one person, you know, the person becomes like the face of this movement, but he gets to take a lot of people on the journey with him. So it's kind of fun. Awesome. I'm looking forward to watching more Fellini because I've seen very little of him. I've only seen Eight and a Half, La Dolce Vita, Ivitaloni, which is my favorite of his, and La Strada. So mm-hmm. I'm definitely looking forward to watching more of his stuff. I'm kind of tempted to maybe splurge for the set, but I want to I want to get the Bergman set a bit more than I want the Fellini set. So um, yeah, yeah I was saying, I'm hoping once more of his stuff was up on the channel, I'll definitely be checking that out, especially his earlier stuff. It's fun, yeah. What about you, Adam? Um, for me, um, I watched just the other day. I, I'm friends of the podcast. Will know I'm a big Abbas Kiarostami fan. Um, think he's just a genius filmmaker. Um, I went back and watched his first film, like his first sort of what you would call a full length film. It's just over an hour long, and it's called Traveler. Um, it's kind of like a weird companion piece to Where Is the Friend's House, because they both follow basically a young boy on a quest or a journey. Um, and it's basically, it's just about them getting from point A to point B and the people they meet along the way and the things they do to complete their quest. Um, so it's a very straightforward, standard storytelling, but the way the two films are told and the, the characters are, are very, very different. So in Where's the Friend's House, which takes place in rural Iran, it's a, you know, the boy is on a noble quest. He's driven by, um, by kindness to try and return um, a notebook to his friend who if he doesn't do his homework that night he'll get expelled from school and he does everything he can with possible power to get that notebook to his friend whereas in The Traveller it's a, it's an urban set film it takes place in a city very narrow streets it's shot in very high contrast very um, just shot in very volatile black and white film so it has a sort of it has a very neo-realist feel, feel to it the way the film is shot you can definitely tell, like, I'd be surprised if Kiarostami wasn't like a, like a Rossellini fan, you know, the, the way this film is shot or a De Sica fan actually even more so. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet yeah, the, the, the main character, the boy in this film is, is just a nightmare child. He never goes to school, never does his homework, he lies, cheats and steals. He's just completely selfish. And his journey, his quest in this film is to uh, go to see a soccer game in Tehran, um, which is a 150 round mile round trip um for him and obviously it's very expensive so he essentially swindles his way to getting all the money by you know selling selling the goalposts that belong to his soccer team that all of his teammates pitched in with and stealing from his mother and um even gets a broken camera and takes portraits of people um obviously the camera doesn't even work he plans just telling them afterwards they move too much so the, the pictures didn't come out right. He's just a complete swindler, a complete con man of a 12-year-old. Um, and yeah, he's just driven completely by selfish just to go see this go see this soccer match. Um, yeah, the way the way the film was shot was really, really great. Like Kiristami just has a real, just a real touch of magic when it comes to telling such a simple story. 
he always makes it look interesting you know just the sort of quick editing in this film and the very I don't want to say tense shots but you know the shots are very sort of close quarters and it kind of matches the intensity of the character because he is a very he's, he's a he's an event he's an intense young kid he's intelligent but he's he is intense as well um and when he does eventually get to Tehran to go to the soccer match it's kind of and this is what this is what really sort of ties it into neorealism as well it's very similar in terms of how it looks to the scene i don't know if you guys have seen bicycle thieves mm-hmm. but like the the scene at the end of bicycle thieves where they're like outside the soccer match with all the crowds very very similar and you know how that's sort of portrayed so i thought that was another cool tie into the sort of to the way this film sort of harks back to like a neorealist era about sort of 20 30 years before this film was made but it was really great like i've, I've yet to see a kurostami film that i don't like um so i, I was kind of going into this from a sort of just medium hopes because i knew it was his first film i wasn't expecting a ton out of it um but i, I really really enjoyed it. it's probably the best film i've seen in a, in a, in a good while not counting night of hunter which obviously was a rewatch for me but in terms of like the best new film i've seen in a while probably will be right up there if not the best i've seen in a while from a new film perspective i guess the biggest question for you the way that you did your top 100 is is it the best film from the year that it was made oh geez uh i'll find out um isn't that how you did your top 100 oh no you chose your top Uh, 100 exactly i just chose my top 100 and just ranked them that's right um but I'm, I'm now curious to see if there was a film from 1974 that's in my top 100 that I might like more. I'm just going to actually look that up right now really quick so I have Letterboxd open. Uh, let me scroll through here. Chris, I hope you didn't mind that I stole your idea for the top 100. Oh, thanks for the shout out, man. I'm honored. I'm honored. I, uh, yeah, no, I don't mind at all. It's I, I, Just like you said, I, I don't trust my memory, so... Yeah, I mean, some of that stuff I had on, like, my top 20. I was like, I haven't seen that since I was in college. I was like, I don't even know if I'd like it anymore. This is this is actually kind of weird. I only have four films in my top 100 that were made in the 70s. Wow, that's the polar opposite of mine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised myself looking at it, to be honest with you. There's actually a seven-year gap. So I have The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, which is 1970, okay. and then The Ascent, which is 1977. So apparently I don't like any films made between those years. Um, now, to be fair, with this top 100, it's definitely not complete. It's mostly pulled from my letterbox rankings mm-hmm. over the last year with, you know, some ones in between that I remember that I thought, OK, well, I can't leave this film out. So I'm sure there is 70s films, 70s film <laughs> enthusiasts don't come knocking at my door. I'm sure there is films in the 70s that I do like. Um, but off the top of my head. Yeah. Traveler, 1970, best film in 1974. You heard her here first. <laughs> There's a, it's going to be hard competition with the Night Porter, but... Um, oh, is that that year? <laughs> and uh, Texas Chainsaw was... Massacre. Yeah, exactly. So Ooh, I think Zach fills in nicely, like, the 70s and 80s for you, Adam, because that's kind of your sweet spot, Zach, right? Yeah, yeah, that's that's where I'll have my love for is in the 70s and 80s. I'm just looking at films. I'm just, I just did a Google search for 1974 and film. And to be fair, like, this year, like, I'm... Like, there, I'm, I'm not gonna, there is definitely better films like The Conversation, Young Frankenstein, just from the first line here. I'm sure there probably is better films, but I'm not seeing anything here that I love from 1974. Um, oh, The Parallax View was 1974 as well. Um, yeah, I'm not seeing anything here from 1974 that I love. So, yeah, I'm going to say that's my favorite film of 1974. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that. 
I heard it here first. Heard it here first. 1974, friend of the podcast, the year 1974. And that wraps up this week's episode of They Live by Film. You can catch uh, me, Chris, and Zach on our Letterboxd or Reddit accounts, uh, the links of which will be in the description. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at They Live by Film.